Well, when you think about the table of life and you think about what goes on around the table sometimes, <clears throat> many different things happen at the kitchen table, the dining table. In our house, meals happen, so that includes people. When you include people in our house sometimes, um, that can be a great thing, all right? Sometimes that can be a bad thing, and here's what I mean. So sometimes around the table, uh, people talk against each other. Do your kids ever do that? Any name-calling ever happen at the table? No? No, man. All right, I need to be uh, sitting amongst you guys this morning. Somebody else come take the, the mantle this morning. But uh, So therefore, discipline sometimes happens at our table uh, as a result. But uh, the table of life, many things happen. Sometimes we speak against each other, or maybe we'll say things against other people that aren't even there, aren't even present. It happens. And sometimes at the table of life, during the week, uh, around the kitchen table, for example, in our house yesterday, sitting and doing uh, taxes. Um, yes, I have an extension. Don't worry about that. But uh, didn't forget about that. I was going through some taxes and stuff and working through that to give it to my guy who, who takes care of all that stuff because uh, it's beyond me. But sometimes the plans of life happen around the table. What's going to happen during the week? What's going to happen with meals during the week or, or vacation or what are we going to do with this money? Or what are we going to do because we don't have that money? And, and, and you name it, we sit down and we, we plan things and we, we work through things. And, and both those things, dealing with people and what we say about people, and the plans of life and how we handle them, when you bring those two things together, like we're going to do in today's text and see with James, is we see that... Um, if we omit God out of the plans of life, and if we speak against other people in a slanderous way, then what we're doing is we are playing God, as though we are God. And that's what James is going to hit on this morning. He said, hey, who do you think you are? Um, that you can live your life in such a way where you speak against people and you plan your days accordingly without submitting your life to God. And that's what we ended on last week. If you remember in the church that James is talking to, the body is experiencing conflict and quarrels and fighting and, and they're at each other. And so he's been addressing that. And then at the end last week, he said, submit yourself to God. Resist the enemy. Draw close to God, humble yourself before the Lord. Come before him and be broken. Have your life cleansed and be changed. Have a pure heart. And so what is James saying even today as we look at this text? Submit to God, submit to God. And so as we look at the text today, I want us to see that what we ended with last week is really a link to what we're going to look at today as well and how significant it is that this morning that we come before a holy God and we say, God, I want to submit my life before you. And especially today when it comes to dealing with people and when it comes with dealing with the plans of life, I want to submit my life before you. And so today that we would not play God, but that instead we would submit our life to the one God. And so look at James chapter 4, if you would, with me this morning in verse 11. 
And listen to what James says, as Matt read for us already. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. So he's talking to the church, brothers and sisters in the Lord. He says, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brothers speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but instead you are a judge of it. And so as a follower of Christ, a follower of Jesus this morning, we are not to speak against each other. We see that. We see this command that is given here in verse 11. And this idea of speaking against is, is the verb to slander, to speak ill of someone, to speak falsely of someone, to lie about something involving another. And so now, no doubt, this is part of that quarreling and conflict that is happening in the churches in Jerusalem that was present and going on. And so James says, when we do this, we're speaking against the law. So we're not just speaking against somebody else, but we're speaking against the law itself. So what does James mean? When we speak against someone, we're speaking against the law. The law commands us to not speak be slanderers. In fact, in Leviticus 19, probably for many of us our favorite devotional book, but in Leviticus 19, in verse 15 through 18, it's, it reads this way. It says, you shall not do uh, injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And so we're going to talk about judging in just a little bit. So there is judgment involved here that you are to judge your neighbor fairly. But listen to what he says in verse 16. You shall not go about as a slander among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. And God says, I am the Lord. And then he says in verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then God says again, I am the Lord. And so in the law, that's what the first five books of God's word is, it's God's law, we read that we're not to be a slander. That we're instead to do what? We're to love our neighbor as ourself. We're not even supposed to have hate in our heart for our brother or our neighbor. So when we speak against a brother or sister, what James is saying here in the Lord, whether we're name-calling or whatever, spreading lies, gossip, we not only break the law, but we treat the law as though it doesn't even matter, even as though it doesn't exist. James says that's what you're doing. We therefore stand as judge of the law and basically say that the law is not worthy to be obeyed and followed, and therefore, I'm not going to apply it to my life. And we live in such a way as we talk about people freely in slanderous ways. James says you're not only acting as a judge of the law, but something even greater is going on when you talk about somebody in such a way. Look at verse 12. It says, there is only one lawgiver. There's only one judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But you, or excuse me, but who are you who judge your neighbor? And so James doesn't just settle with the fact that, hey, listen, uh, if you're slanderous against someone, you are judging the law. But he says here as well that if you 
speak of someone in a wrong way, that you're impacting the authority of God. You're holding the authority of God into question. God is the one who is the lawgiver. He stands behind the law. He has given the law. He is the true judge of the law. And so when we slander, we criticize another, we're putting ourselves in the seat of God. We're saying we're the Lord. We're the one who is to judge. When only that is a seat for God alone. And such action is selfish. And that's what James has been addressing. At the end of James 3, he talked about the wisdom of the world. And it's very selfish, self-centered self-satisfying, and that's what James is addressing here is you're playing God. You're, you're being selfish, and one who criticizes another exalts himself against, above the Lord himself. And so what do we do with this idea of judging our neighbor that he says here? Who are you to, to judge your neighbor? Um, we find in our day, in our world, that one of the most quoted scriptures today isn't John three sixteen as though it used to be. But what is one of the most quoted scriptures in our world today? In fact, non-believers even know it. Um, it might soon replace John 3:16 behind the field goal posts um, on a Sunday. But it's Matthew 7, verse 1. Now how does Matthew 7, verse 1 read? It says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not judge others. A highly quoted Verse today, that's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And James said the same thing in a way. He says, who are we to judge our neighbor? Now, Jesus continues and he says this, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measured, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own I. Jesus was talking about that we would look within our own heart and our own life and deal with our own sin and the pile of sin in our own life and our own heart before we would ever go to someone else who was struggling with sin and pointing that out. And he was talking about us judging one another within the family of God and the kingdom of God. And so what does this judgment look like? Because we even live in a world, you maybe face this at your place of work, or maybe you encounter this in many different ways, whether it's social media, whether it's through media, whatever it may be, this idea that we're not to judge each other. But yet, if you read back in Leviticus 19, we are to judge our neighbors fairly. And so there is a sort of judgment going on. And so what is that? Yet, we're not to judge. So, so what is it? Well, here's what I would say. If, if we look at Scripture and the whole counsel of God's Word, if we take James' Word and the words of Jesus, first of all, I would say this this morning. In light of what James chapter 3, verse 12 tells us, is that God alone first has the right to judge. He is the one true judge. He's the lawgiver. He's the author of justice and righteousness. And so that would be the first place to start. The second place, though, as we look at Scripture, um, New Testament, also Old Testament. God gives the responsibility to judge others as we are representatives of God. And so here's what that means. As is, is you think about Jesus, God gave Christ, his own son, to come to this earth. And, and he's a representative of God. He's the, um, the son of God. And he came to, yes, judge. And judge in certain ways. 
And we too, God has given us the same responsibilities as representatives of God. And so what does that look like? First of all, you look at government. He's given us government, what's on the city level, state, national level. People that judge in certain ways. And then you look at the role of elders in the church. Where they've been given to the church to, to give oversight. And to even give oversight to, to conduct among those who are believers in the body. To parents. You think about that. Parents have been given oversight to their children to, to set rules and, and laws in the house. I don't think anybody calls them laws, but anyway, um, you give those in the house. Even as Christians who are walking by the Spirit of God, and we see another believer who is stumbling and who is trapped in the depth and the weight of sin and is even being overcome by it, we are called to go to a brother and sister in love and seek to restore them back. We are called to do that. And so a certain kind of, of judging is going on, but this is all in harmony with what? God's standards, God's truth, not according to our standards, but the Word of God. And then third, we are told not to judge. As we read today, our neighbor, and also Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And so um, what does that mean? In a way that is slanderous. That is in a way that we are looking at our own standards instead of God's standards. In a way that is in the wrong motive. Not in a, a motive to seek to restore a brother or sister, but in a way to talk bad about them. Many times to make ourselves look good. And so we must be careful. But we also must be understanding of what does Scripture say about it. But clearly today, what's happening in the church that James is dealing with is that they are being slanderous. They are lying about each other and talking bad and putting down others. And when we do that, we are playing God and not trusting our Heavenly Father. And so we must humble ourselves, as we're told in James 7, verse 10, and humble ourselves under His commands and love others, especially with our words. So not only it's what we say about others, but also it's how we treat the day-to-day -day living, our plans. Look at verse 13. James addresses how they treat one another, but listen to how they treat the day-to-day -day living. Verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now, there's an interesting little phrase there, come now. Right? Or listen up. He wants to get their attention. He wants to awaken their spirit. It's almost like, come on now, right? Listen up. And what's he addressing here? He says to them, today or tomorrow, you'll go here and there. That's your plan. Spend a year there. Make money here. And so who's he speaking to specifically? It seems to be that he's addressing... Uh, these group of, of Jewish uh, merchants, businessmen, uh, even those who are, who are traveling, uh, looking to start business, looking to, to engage maybe internationally as well with, with some of the ports and, and trade and so on, but they're seeking to engage in business for the sake of building wealth. And, and so this statement in itself is not bad if you read it, is it? No. 
Now, James is going to tell us in two verses that we should say this instead. So he is saying, don't say this. But if you look at it in itself, it's, it's not necessarily bad. In fact, James would say this. It, the issue is not that you want to make money. The issue is not that you want to build wealth or have a desire to do that. He's not even necessarily addressing that. But the attitude that he is addressing is the omission of God. Is the idea that making money or building wealth comes before devotion to God. It's the idea that making the plans of life and the plans of today happens without any dependence or trust in the Lord. And so the statement here is a picture of something greater, is a life that is lived without depending on the Lord for the daily functions of life. They're making plans, and plans are good. James is not against plans. Planning is a good thing, but they're doing so without God. And so therefore, there's an attitude about things as though God did not exist and as though we are God and we play that role. And so James says here in verse 14, that's the issue. He says, yet you don't know that your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. James says that you say this, but you have no idea. You're making all these plans, but you have no idea what tomorrow brings. You, you don't know if you're going to wake up and it's 48, right? And you're like, what in the world? <laughs> and you don't know if a, you know, severe storms are going to happen on Saturday in the Dallas-Fort Worth area when we barely got a drop of rain, Pete Delkis, right? Um, but, but yet... You don't know if a tornado's going to come and, and change everything. Just a hundred or so miles east, maybe even less of us. So you don't know what tomorrow brings. Um, and then he says, you're just a vapor, a vapor. It's like this morning when you poured your cup of coffee, the, the steam that rose from it. How long did that stay there? Not long, huh? Just mere moment. And that's the idea James wants us to get. It's like the fog that comes one morning and then quickly burns off and it's gone. And James says, that's what life is like. As I was reading this this morning, I often think about this. It, there was a, a time in my life that I came face to face with, with my mortality. And it was a very interesting experience. I was newly married. I'd been married for about two and a half months. Annette and I, and I was away at a youth summer camp with uh, some leaders from our church, middle school and high school students who were going through a leadership camp, and we were done with the week, and we were coming back, and I was alone in my car, and in front of me was our high school pastor, a dear friend, and we had loaded up his truck, and, and there was this one piece of supplies that we had. It was a, this big metal stinking trash can, and trash can will forever live in infamy in my life. And I um, remember tying that thing up. I think he even used a Boy Scout knot. I mean, I think it was pretty firm. 
And we had it down and everything, and sure enough, we're, we're going down I-20 from Abilene back toward Dallas, and I'm driving behind him. We're doing about 65, maybe 70, and, and all of a sudden, that metal trash can flies up in his truck and just comes barreling at me. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, man, I should just let that thing hit me. Um, but all I could do, I just remember just turning, you know, and, or maybe it was this way, I forget which way it was, and, and then all of a sudden, I just spin and spin and spin. My buddy will tell you, dude, you spun at least seven times. Just going down the highway about 65, 70 and spinning and weaving through semis. And I just, I remember it was like, you, know, you ever seen the Matrix and things are going, and you're just flying. I mean, that's what it's like. I got Taco Bell flying, right? On one side, I got a drink, I'm getting wet, I'm just, I don't, I don't know why I'm getting wet, I think I have a few reasons why I'm getting wet, but things are flying, I'm turning, and things are just, and it, and it felt like five minutes, and it was seconds, but I just remember seeing semis, I, I remember people honking, I'm thinking, honking, I mean, what? <laughs> and I just, it was like slow-mo, and I can laugh about it now, but it was, mo- it was the most frightening moment of my life, and I'm weaving, and I'm, oh, it's just, it was horrible horrific. And I just knew, I knew in that moment, this is it. This is it. This is it. Newly married, that's it. And then all of a sudden, the car like starts straightening out, but it's dancing still. And it starts to veer off through the median onto the other side of the highway. And all I'm seeing is, oh, good night. Cars, but coming at me. And then all of a sudden, the car just stops. Just stops. And I just sat there in the middle of this grassy field, in the middle of one high, each highway on each side. And, and I just sat there. All of a sudden, this, this guy walks up, and I hear this knock on my window. And I look up, and he goes, are you okay? <laughs> and I just sat there, and I got out. And I, I remember I could barely stand. I was shaking. I was in complete shock, I think. And he looked at me, and he put his arm around me. It was a complete stranger. He says, are, are you okay? I was like, man, I don't know. And he's like, dude, that was, that was crazy. And I was like, I know. <laughs> and I remember the whole way back, I was white-knuckling it, and just, I don't even know if I made it to 50 the whole way back. The longest trip from Abilene to Dallas took him by me the rest of the way. But I remember that day, the whole way thinking on the way back, and I go back to it often, that it's so important that we come face to face with our own mortality um, because life is a vapor. I mean, that could have easily, I mean, easily ended my life, very easily. And so, and so whether, whether we're here this morning, whether we're a student, whether we're in college, I sat next to a guy just a couple weeks ago on an airplane um, from, from here to to Denver, Colorado, I sat next to a guy, 80-something years old, and he was going to the funeral of his, his uh, sister up in Ohio. And we, my, my oldest daughter would tell you, they talked for two hours <laughs> on the plane. And, and this guy, he talked about going to see, you know, pay respects to his sister, but, but the thing we talked about the whole, most of the time was how he lost his daughter three months after her college graduation. Everything, I remember just seeing the tears in his eyes still today. He's 80-something years old. And he was telling me, he's like, you never get over it. You wake up every morning, you never get over it. 
And he said, my daughter had everything ahead of her. Had worked so hard. And then in a car accident, just, just took, it, took it all. And he, said, and he just reminded me in that moment. You, you're reminded of how life is just short, the brevity of it. And James wants us to realize that. He wants us to understand the weight of that because we are not promised tomorrow. We're not even promised the next moment in here. And so he brings that to the table and says, listen, so as a result, our attitude should not be verse 13. Oh, just, we're just going to make our plans and we're just going to do this and this and this. No, instead, he says in verse 15, as a result of not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring and, and you don't know how short your life is, here's the attitude we should have. Instead, in verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And so what he's, what's he saying? He, he's saying to the merchant or the businessman that, that has this attitude, or for any of us, depend and trust in the Lord as you make the plans for today and as you live, or the plans for tomorrow and as you live for today, recognizing that God is sovereignly control over everything. We're not supposed to use this term mechanically. Some of us will say, if it's the Lord's will, and there's nothing wrong with that. Hopefully that reflects an attitude that means that. It's not to be a mechanical term, but it's to be an attitude that we live with. That everything is about the Lord's will. Proverbs 3, verse 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. But listen to what he says. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your paths Straight. It's not making your plans and then asking God simply to bless them, but it's laying your whole life before God and asking Him to help you every step of the way with the day-to-day from business to making money to the home with marriage to parenting and everything else that we face in the flow of life. We must ask, what is God's will? What is God's will? And then do it. To actualize. Now, th- now think about this this morning. Just real quickly, can I give you just a few simple notes on God's will. This isn't necessarily a message where we just sit on this, but I, but I want you to hear this this morning. What are some simple things that we know this is God's will, that we can run through the plans of life? So, so here, first of all, 1 Timothy 2.4 tells us this, that it is God's will that all men be saved and come to the true knowledge of who he is. And so first and foremost, that's, that's God's will for everyone's life. Now, is that going to happen? Is everyone going to come to faith? Sadly, no. But that's God's will. So if you're here this morning and you're wondering, man, what's God's will for my life? First and foremost, that you know him, that you have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ who died for you so that you could have life. That's God's will, his desire for your life. Another verse that clearly states the will of God is 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It, I love this one because it says, this is God's will. It's almost like Paul is saying, hey, I'm just going to be black and white here. There, there, there is no gray area here. This is God's will. And what is it? Your sanctification. Big word. Your holiness. He goes on and explains it, verse 3 through 8. And he basically talks about purity, that you would live a life of purity, that you would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead that you would live according to the way of the Holy Spirit, that you would please God. That you live in purity. That's God's will for our life. And so looking at our life and saying, okay, am I living 
with a pure heart? Am I living with a pure speech? Am I living with pure eyes? Am I living with pure hands and a pure body? Am I living and giving my life to Christ and living in a purified or, or in a, a way of purity? And then another verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Peter talks about this, that we would be submissive. And specifically, he's talking to uh, governmental authorities that our life would be submissive to those in leadership, but also in, in the place of work, that our life would be submissive to those who are in authority over us and in other different roles in life, that we would um, be submissive, even in marriage, as Paul will talk about in Ephesians chapter 5. And then Ephesians 5, 17 through 18, listen to what Paul says, that that this is God's will that we should do this, that we would be filled with the Spirit. And what does that mean? That, that, that simply means that you and I would obey God, that we wouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. A life filled with the Holy Spirit is a life that lives in obedience to God's commands. And that's what God wants for us, that we would obey Him. That's His will. And lastly, 1 Peter 3.17, Peter specifically says it's God's will that we would suffer for doing right and doing what is good. Sometimes we don't think about suffering as being part of God's will, but it is for us. Because we will face definitely suffering as we do what's right and we do what's good. And so those are some simple verses that we find that we can just run life through and, and, and our plans through and say, hey, how does this line up with, with God's will? And then in Psalm 37, 4, I love what the psalmist says. He says that we're to delight ourselves in the Lord. That's our command. That we would delight ourselves in God and who He is and His ways and His commands. And we're promised here that when we do that, God will give us the desires of our heart. Never think that what God is saying here that, hey, whatever you want, I'm going to give it out and pass it out. I'm Santa Claus. I mean, that's not what, what, what that means whatsoever. But what it does mean is this, that as we delight ourselves in God, as we seek to obey him and love him and, and, and in all his ways, seek to live out his commands, here's what he's going to do. He's going to plant desires within us that line up with his will. And then when he says right here, he, he's going to fulfill his plans, and his ways. And so that's God's desire for us. That's his will for us. It's Matthew 6, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As we seek the Lord, we don't need to worry about the daily needs of life. He will take care of us. Everything we need, not our greeds, doesn't say that, but everything we need as we trust him, he will take care of it. Even through the different seasons of life, even when things get tough, he will take care of us. Think about this. We think about this idea that we are a vapor that's gone one moment, and we immediately think the weight of that, and, and, and we think the worst of that. If we're just, just gone, and, and James wants us to think about that. But I want you to think of this too, that we are a vapor held by God. And that's what James is trying to get across. Hey, be a vapor held by God. Be a vapor held by the will of God. Not only that, you may not know what tomorrow brings. That's what James is saying. You don't know what to bring. But, but here's the deal. Know that he does and he holds tomorrow. So trust him 
with today and tomorrow. Whatever season you're in, life may be hard now. Things might be tough. It might be tough with, with, with raising kids. It may be hard right now. Man, maybe struggling with, with, with what to do. And, 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 and think about this. In, in Jeremiah 29, 11, we, we, we all know that verse, right? Where, where it says that God says, I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans to prosper you, right? For your welfare, you remember that? And not for calamity. And so we think that, and then we go through the tough stuff of life, and we think, well, God, what happened to Jeremiah 29, 11? Because this doesn't feel like prospering me. It, doesn't, it feels more like calamity that I'm going through. We, we read that, and we think, what happened? Well, think about the Israelites. As, as Jeremiah is saying that about God, it's in the midst of captivity. It's in the midst of suffering. And so he's saying this to a people that are going through a real bad season of life. And he's saying there, right in the midst of that, hey, I have plans for you even in the valley, even in the tough times, the hard times. I have plans for you. And even in this moment, I have plans for good. And even your welfare even under such a, reg- a regime that is hard on you and you're suffering, I have good for you in this. And not only that, I'm going to care for you in this season. And so it doesn't mean that, that when we go through those seasons, we start questioning God and saying, God, what are you doing, man? This is really your will? Because he's going to say, yeah, it's definitely part of my will. And, and it's for you to live out my will in that season. That's tough. We don't like always to hear that. But that's why God in Psalm 46.10, that's why he says, be still. Stop striving. He says, and, and know that I am God, and, and I'm going to be exalted no matter what happens around you, even if the earth folds up and, and goes away, and the mountains fold up and go away. I mean, you name it. He, he says, listen, I, I'm there. I'm there. So, 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 Trust in me, rest in me, even in those moments. Because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And your life is a vapor, even through the different seasons of life. So don't just throw it to the wind, he's saying. Don't just give up. Don't just say that you're going to do this and that and try to make your own plans. But he says, listen, trust me. Trust me. And then to wrap up, listen real quickly. Listen to what he says. He says, but there's going to be those who don't heed the word in verse 15. And they're going to do this in verse 16. But as it is, this is what they're doing. You boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Basically what he's saying is you live that God, uh, you live in such a way that God doesn't exist. Your attitude is in such a way about the things of life that you're in control. And you're completely satisfied with that. So much so that you boast about what you're doing. It's self-man-made living, taking credit for what God has given them. James says here, such an attitude portrays an idea that you are God. And James says, that's evil. And then he closes and says in verse 17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do, 
and does not do it, to him it is sin. Basically what he's saying, if you know what God's will is and you don't live out God's will, it's sin. It's against God. And so simply, in closing, he's saying, if you know God's will, actualize it, live it out, put it into practice. And so what do we say at the end here? I think real simply, all week, the thought I've had is, is who's piloting my life, right? Who's in control? Is it, is it Jerry? Is Jerry calling the shots? Or is Jesus calling the shots? Is Jesus piloting my life, the course of it? Do I believe that? Am I living in such a way that, that, that my attitude reflects that, my life reflects that? Am I truly depending on him? And that's how we all have to look at this text today. You say, who is piloting my life? Who is, who is leading the charge? Who's making the plans? Who's leading the way? And so today, what about us? Who's piloting? Who's leading? Today, as we come to this time of communion, as we reflect on what God has said and we look and Remember what Christ has done for us as we take the bread and we take the cup. I want you to remember 1 Timothy 2, 4. This is God's will that, that all men be saved, that all men come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're in here today and, and you have, may we remember what Christ has done for us, that he suffered and died for us. Not, not so that we could just have a free pass and do whatever we want, but that we could Walk with him. Follow him as Savior, as, as pilot, as Lord of our life. That's what he died for. Not just a free ticket, but a life lived under his authority. And there's no better life. And so today as we come, and we remember that. That's why Christ died for us. If you're here today, you've never trusted in Christ, it's God's will that you know him. It's God's best for you that you know Christ and you believe in him. Would you believe in him today? Trust in him today as Savior. Let me pray.